0: for the Diversity in Path podcast, and I would like to introduce my guest, Dr. Nicole Jackson. Dr. Jackson is an assistant medical examiner in Chicago and is supports provide anatomical, clinical, and forensic pathologist. She completed her pathology residency at Louisiana State University Health Sciences Center and her forensic pathology fellowship at the New Mexico Office of the Medical Investigator. Dr. Jackson is a fellow of ASCP, where she serves as a mentor and is one of the founding members and current board member of the newly formed Society of Life Pathologists. She is a member of the National Association of Medical Examiners, the National Medical Association, the American Medical Women's Association, and the College of American Pathologists. Among her interests, Dr. Jackson enjoys serving as a mentor, participating in community outreach, focusing on mental health and wellness, and increasing the visibility of forensic pathologists as first responders to threats on the nation's life expectancy. She is also interested in studying deaths in vulnerable populations and ways to reduce the number of preventable deaths. Without further ado, here is Dr. Nicole Jackson. All right. Welcome, everybody. Hi, friends. And I'm here uh, with Dr. Nicole Jackson, which I'm so happy that she's here to record one of my first podcasts with, so welcome.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yes. Um, So we'll start out um, in terms of where you're coming from and also pronouns that people should refer to you as.
1: Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Nicole Jackson. I am currently an assistant medical examiner in Chicago for Cook County. I am originally from the great state of New Jersey. Woo-woo. I'm pronoun she, her, hers. Yeah, Jersey is an awesome state. A lot of haters, but, you know, they always hate on you when you're on the top.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. I feel like there was always like this negative stereotype about New Jersey and then just like it being a separate like thing. But it's so close to New York City. So for me, it was always like a hard transition to separate them states, in a way, but that's just me. Um, so tell us how you got into pathology because we see you rocking that pathology sweatshirt, sis. Get it, yes. <laughs> uh,
1: so yeah, I'm one of those people that switched into pathology. I'm very grateful I did. Uh, Like you, I started out in general surgery, so I did my general surgery um, intern year down in North Carolina at Wake Forest. Big cancer hospital, um, high volume of cases, many services, a lot of good learning, Um, but about halfway through I I was fairly bored with it in terms of uh, managing patients on the floor and managing IV fluids and like playing games with the different residents about how best to manage things and people changing orders behind the backs, dealing with surgeons and their attitudes and their tempers. And so um, I was on the colorectal service. Uh, We had a Putes-Jegers syndrome, uh, a middle-aged man, and he came in um, and he had a ton of polyps in his bowel. And so we were taking him to the OR to remove a segment, send it to PATH, and Uh, Probably my favorite surgeon there. He used to always open the bowel in the operating room, which you're not supposed to. Uh, But I remember he opened it. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I remember he opened it and just being amazed by all the polyps that almost carpeted um, the bowel and just being more obsessed with what what was going on in the bowel than everything else I was dealing with with surgery. Then he sent it off to path, and I was like, huh, so they're the ones that get to really, like, play with that and interact with that and see how bad it is Um, and so things progressed and I just started researching pathology more and um, I was so unhappy in general surgery you know it was a very stereotypical experience where there were very few women definitely very few underrepresented minorities not a welcoming place Um, And I looked over at PATH, and I was like, wow, there's a lot of diversity. There's a lot of women in leadership positions. Um, And then I was reviewing, you know, what classes did I like most in medical school? And a lot of the classes overlap strongly with pathology. You know, I, I took a histology class a long time ago. I loved it. I loved biochemistry, genetics, all, all the nerdy things. Um, and then you still maintain that um, anatomy and dissection component, especially with surgical pathology and autopsy. Um, additionally, I went to med school at Tulane, and I did their dual degree program. And so I earned, alongside my medical degree, a master's in public health and epidemiology. And so I thought, well, how better to use this master's in public health than um, in the specialty that just studies disease, right? So Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. switched in, and I switched specifically to do forensic pathology. Um, I thought it was a nice (laughs) interface with public health. Also, my dad died uh, very suddenly when I was young. I was about five, uh, and he died suddenly, unexpectedly, at the age of, like, 35 And so a lot of what we do, people think gunshot wounds, your homicides, that's somewhat. But a lot of our deaths are those natural deaths that either occur unexpectedly um, in someone who hasn't had a primary care physician and they're unavailable to sign the death certificate. Mm -hmm. So we figure out what was going on and we tell that to the family. Or you also have these cases of younger people. You really don't expect to die, and so you have to delineate what happened. Was it a natural death? Was it an accidental death? Um, And it provides so much closure to the family. Uh, And I knew I would never get tired of that. So I'm trying to think if that's everything. I also liked, um, you know, after basically living in the hospital for a year straight, pathology had a really nice work-life balance. I think one of the the better specialties for it, you know, especially forensics. I mean, they are already dead. So, you know, most things can wait till morning. So there's no coming in in the middle of the night, interrupting your sleep for the most part. Um, mm. So for all those reasons, I switched over to pathology, and I've been very happy with that life decision.
0: Yes, yes. we're so happy that you're part of the pathology family. Um, and in into the, you know, that you're at your answer and talking about everything that, that was happening. Um, I had a couple of questions, actually. So when you were transitioning from surgery to pathology, what were your thoughts in doing that? Was it like, all right, definitely, I'm definitely going to go and do it. Um, Was there any hesitation? I guess, what sort of things were you going through during that transition from picking pathology to applying to actually getting in um, that can help somebody who's probably in a similar position, but is not really telling um, anybody about it because of fear of repercussion?
1: Well, I think I was in a very unique position because I had, for some reason, I had a token going into the match, Um, just had it in my back pocket just in case. And so Mm -hmm. when I got halfway through the year, I was like, oh, I don't want to be here. That allowed me to, I forget, soap or scramble in. So what I wound up doing was waiting till everyone matched, and then looked at open positions. Um, and I actually wasn't 100% sold on pathology at the time, so it was between pathology and radiology. And um, I remember I had phone interviews. They were in the middle of the day, but I was on a night service. So it was for me in the middle of the night. So I would like get up, do some jumping jacks to try to wake up and have these engaged conversations. <laughs> um, and I, <laughs> it was, it was pretty ridiculous. Uh-huh. Um, and the night uh-huh. service was very busy. And so one conversation I think was one of the New York radiology programs. Another was a radiology program out somewhere in Pennsylvania, and the third was back in New Orleans. So Mm -hmm. I went to med school at Tulane, loved New Orleans, um, and it was at LSU's pathology program. And so in my mind, I was like, pathology to do forensics or radiology to do interventional radiology. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was eh, so-so with the radiology interviews, but I really connected with um, our program director at the time, Dr. McGowey, who was one of two autopsy pathologists in the program. Mm -hmm. And so LSU had a fantastic autopsy service. They had two fully dedicated autopsy physicians. One was Dr. Newman, uh, who was trained himself by, you know, old time forensic pathologists and coroners. Mm -hmm. And then he Mm -hmm. directly trained Dr. McGowey. And so she was the program director. And we just had such a fantastic conversation and really clicked Um, And I was like, yes, this is the right choice for me. Uh, Funny story, when we (laughs) met years later, or not years later, when we talked about this story years later, I was telling her, you know, I was half awake in the middle of the night, and she was like, oh, I was coming down with the flu. So we both put on our uh, game faces for it. But it really worked out. So I I, I hope no one's in that situation because it was so Um, wishy-washy. But it was absolutely talking to her and hearing her joy and passion for what she did. It just resonated with, every, with everything I thought I would love about forensics because, you know, I hadn't done an autopsy ever. I hadn't seen mm-hmm. an autopsy. Mm-hmm. In med school, I was gung-ho general surgery, you yeah. know. I was uh, president of whatever, our surgery interest club. I did all the research in surgery. And so, you know, it was a risky move. But then speaking to someone who was clearly so passionate about what they did, yeah. found it so fulfilling, um, and then had the same same respect for the families for death and dying with dignity and um, just communicating your findings and trying mm-hmm. to close any gaps. Mm-hmm. Um, especially that was a hospital based service, so right. most of those, for people don't know, um, you already know usually why they die in the hospital. It's seeing the extent of disease um, and relaying that to the family. And I feel like a lot of times that's a communication gap for some reason between the primary care team or the surgical team and the family so uh-huh. that's my little story
0: yes i think we all love the story <laughs> stories are what drives us and makes us understand you know people i think better a bit more um so besides autopsy during your residency was there anything else uh, pathology or lab medicine related that you also enjoyed
1: goodness so i loved it all like i
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> thoroughly enjoyed
1: my pathology experience, which I was not expecting. Uh, you know, I told you, mm-hmm. I went in blind. I didn't even know there was anatomic and clinical pathology. Um, and at, mm-hmm. at the end, let's see, at one point, I was determined I was going to be a hematopathologist. I loved heme. Went over to cytology. Mm-hmm. Loved cytology. Um, mm-hmm. uh, surge path, whatever. I think it was just the structure of the program, but I liked the concept of it. I loved blood banking and transfusion medicine. Um, I loved almost Mm -hmm. everything. I didn't love like micro and that, but I liked enough. Um, At one point I thought about doing um, one of the women's pathology, um, women's health. So you do Mm -hmm. like cytology and breast and gyne. At one point I was like, no, I just want to be a general pathologist and do a little AP, do a little CP, be in a little group. Um, But ultimately, I circled back around to forensics. I just love coming into work, not knowing what wild story might roll through the door. Um, I like the personality Uh overall, the the people that tend to go into forensics. I was talking to someone the other day, I think one of my mentees, and I was telling her, you know, I think she's in med school, and I was like, you'll see when you, you get to third year and you do your clinical rotations, you'll notice a trend in personalities by specialties now not everyone's Mm -hmm. gonna fit in whatever but you'll notice a trend and i said one of the the personalities i really enjoyed and i got along with was emergency medicine i felt like they were overall pretty laid back you know pretty jovial told jokes got along got their work done
0: a quick shout out to the emergency medicine folks hey y'all what's up Yes. A lot of overlap in what we do, too.
1: But um, I feel like a lot of people that go into forensics have that same similar personality where they're there to get the work done, but they also joke around. Uh, They're the type of people I think I normally hang out with. Um, But... How did I get on this conversation? <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know where we're going with this. We were, we were, I think
0: you answered it. Um, you, you answered the question. It provided more, but then it leads to another um, topic, because I think it, it, it kind of goes back to when you first were interviewing for the different programs and talking about your mentee. So how do you, how do you feel being, I guess, in a mentor position now, Uh, And also, to follow that up, how do you feel makes a good um, or bad mentor-mentee relationship?
1: Sure. So, I will just answer this in some order, and I will touch upon everything. So, I think you said being a mentor now, and I feel like I've been a mentor, and I try to relay this to my mentees at every stage I've been at. So I was a mentor back in undergrad. Um, I got really involved in this organization at Duke called um, The Future Is Now. And so I wound up being the president. But it was geared toward um, quote unquote at risk, young fourth and fifth grade black females in the greater Durham community. And we would invite them on campus every week, pair them one on one with a mentor that was a black female at Duke. And I try to impart this to my mentees wherever you are, you know, whether you're in high school, med school, trying to get into med school. There's someone that wants to be in that position where you are and you can always mentor at whatever level you're at. So I've always found it fulfilling. Um, I think the keys to a good mentor-mentee relationship, um, I never try to push my mentees to do what I do you know, or do it how I did mm-hmm. it. I want to see them for who they are, um, see what their goals are, what their potential is, and guide them. I also like to, th- to connect them and expand their connections, right? So it's just my mentorship is just not me and you. Yeah. It's me and you and my network, and who in my network I think can be a beneficial uh, influence to you. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll get a lot of people... Well, ask me, you know, you're doing an NP fellowship on top of forensics, and people come to me and ask, and I'll give the opinion as someone who considered it, this is why I didn't do it, but I always encourage them to talk to multiple people, so also talk to people who did it. You know, and see what their cost benefit mm-hmm. analysis was. So I think trying not to make it about you and having people model you, but just using your life experiences. Right. So, one of my life experiences is realizing, you know, there are multiple ways to skin a cat, and, you know, what's best for me not, might not be best for you. And just reinforcing certain things I've right. learned along the way. Um, mm-hmm. Bad mentor relationships, I think. It was kind of what I said, trying to force people into this one path to get somewhere or this one um, mentality, mm-hmm. or this is the only way you can do this.
0: Right, right. And, it, and, it, and I bring it up because I feel like going through uh, like medical school or even through residency, being a black, queer person of color, well, same thing, like black... Uh, person being queer and having that intersection trying to find somebody who I can relate to finding somebody who I feel like would be able to give me advice that works out um, for myself at the end would be what I think would be the best so I try to optimize that that discussion I would have and try to find that person but I remember there are people I, I would say oh think to myself oh this person may be able to help me like further or give me advice and i just remember feeling negative or depressed when i talked to them because I, I felt like i'd never made it in their eyes as a mentee or i never um succeeded in a way that they succeeded so i really i'm glad that you brought up the fact that you don't you know push mentees to go in your route like or your shoes but basically give them advice to make them grow and explore on their own so I do appreciate that. Um, So, Mm -hmm. I was
1: going to say, I always try to open at some point um, in our first conversations. A lot of the mentoring, not all, is either through ASCP, I'm a mentor there, or actually via Twitter. People find me. Um, And I always try, I think more with the uh, ASCP because of the format of the request for mentorship, I just always try to lead with, I want people to know that this is a safe space, it's an open Mm -hmm. space, it's a judgment-free space, I want them to feel free to ask me all those questions they are too embarrassed to ask someone else because I I do not care about your MCAT score or your, what do they take, STEP scores or, you know, I just want to get you to where you want to be and especially in pathology. Uh, it's always people asking me about scores and I'm like, just remember you have to be strategic. It's a field. It goes unfilled every single year. And same thing with forensics. So if you have the drive, if you work well with others, if you're serious about your work, Mm. we can get you there. We just have to be strategic about, you know, where you apply um, and other ways to show that you will be beneficial to the field. So. Awesome.
0: Well, let's transition into your work as a forensic pathologist. Um, Tell us about your experience. What was it like being a forensic pathologist during the beginning of the pandemic?
1: It was wild and it keeps getting wilder. Um, So I started the pandemic, I was finishing uh, my fellowship out in New Mexico. So it was very, I felt very protected out there for multiple reasons. One, that office is one of the few offices in the nation that's a biosafety level three. So it was built for respiratory pathogens, you know, endemic in that area is coccidioides, the plague, all these things. So COVID hit. I was like, oh, sweet. I'm in this lovely facility that has all this safe airflow. You know, when everybody was running out of mass, they were able to get these pappers, like, strong space suits to run around in and then um, our governor in new mexico she had a background in public health so she took the pandemic very seriously so i remember you know new york uh, new orleans detroit washington all these areas were getting hit hard and without new mexico having maybe one case i think we had maybe three cases and she shut the state down she came down hard because she understood public health. So I felt very safe. However, I had already signed my contract to start in Chicago in December of 2019. So I knew I was leaving and I was watching Chicago from afar and I was like, oh, it looks a mess. Come to Chicago and it was a mess. You know, COVID was raging. Yeah. You had um, the protests that were peaceful that then turned to non-peaceful protests. You have... The gun violence and so there were so many things going on when I started and then Chicago or this Cook County is where Chicago is. Cook County has decided that since this is a public health emergency not only are we doing our baseline work which has increased uh, we are doing as kind of a quality control measure. Everyone in the office, we split it up. Thankfully, it's a large office. We are reviewing by medical record um, all the potential COVID-19 related deaths that occurred in the hospital and nursing homes. Usually those don't fall our, under our jurisdiction. So it was a lot. So when I started, it was after, I don't know, the first wave, um, and so that wasn't a big deal. So you'd have your paper days, your cutting days, but what happens is, you know, and we're starting to see this now, right before there's a big wave of people getting sick and dying in the community. So the people that die at home without ever reaching the emergency department or the ICU, they start dying at home. So you'll see that. You'll see one rule out COVID case, two, and then it skyrockets. And you see that in the record reviews, too. And we're seeing that now. Um, and I think, goodness, one of the most depressing points of the pandemic. I was on a record review day and it was during, I don't know, the second wave, I don't know what wave we were in, but it was cold out and gray and you know, you're on record review and you have 70 cases of people who just died in your county of COVID in the hospital. And you're just reading through the same sad story, different iterations, right? Um, And you know, it just really hits you reading all these stories about all the hospitals and you know, in Chicago, uh, that wave, it was predominantly the largest population was your Latinx community, and they were younger, and then it would be the black community, a little older, and then elderly white people in decreasing order, and that was, that was honestly very depressing to just sit and do, um, but they did that because, you know, everything was so politicized, and people were saying, oh, people in the hospital, the doctors are just signing everything COVID because they're getting money back, So that's part of the reason it shifted. And then once your COVID cases started coming down, um, gun violence, it just kept going up. And so everyone thinks it's multifactorial. You had decreased police presence. Uh, The gun laws here, I think Chicago is okay, but you just go to the surrounding states and you can go get your guns and come back. I'm sure people are smuggling them in. And so the homicide rate doubled last year. And then the opioid crisis, or went up 50%, and the opioid-related deaths went up 40%. And so we went from about 6,000 cases in 2019 to 16,000 cases. So it's just been nonstop, and estimates are out. I think I just read an article. Homicides, and this is across the nation, they've been up about 14% since last year, and there was an increase last year. So everything's just getting busier. Um, We're seeing a lot more deaths related to um, short fuses. So people bump somebody's bumper on the road, they get out and shoot them. Someone steps on someone's shoe, they unload their gun into them. And so, sorry, I think that's my mail. And so we're seeing a lot of that. So it has been, it's quite a way to start uh, your career right out of fellowship at uh, the busiest office in the nation. But it hasn't really slowed Mm -hmm. down
0: yeah especially with this delta variant that's going on the hesitancy for individuals to get vaccination um and then the uh people who are vaccinated who are getting overexposed and did getting um the virus too so it's been a it's been a bumpy ride and especially for you seeing that um i did have a question about your mph cuz you're also forensics now and you got a degree in public health. How does a forensic pathologist um, interact either with the the health department or with any like department um, county department involved in getting health statistics? And how do you feel like you contributed uh, to the public health portion of forensic pathology? If that makes sense.) <laughs> sure so
1: that's a good that's a really good question so as you know there's so much varied variability in the death investigation system in america and so you look at a medical examiner's office some of those fall under the county like cook county some of those fall under the department of public health like king county in uh, seattle some are you know under neither, and they're associated with a medical school, and then you have coroner's offices, which are just kind of their own entity. So some are directly under the Department of Public right. Health, directly feeding that data in. Um, but for all, you know, our our lives are bookmarked with your birth certificate and your death certificate. So that death certificate, mm-hmm. um, the way we code it or the way we write it, you know, you have your cause of death, your manner of death, and other mm-hmm. significant contributing conditions. And so the department or vital statistics, they're the ones that review um, and people in the office code uh, what we write on that death certificate. And they extract that information um, and use it to create this large database on what is killing us as Americans. And, you know, they do break that down by age, by demographic, by types of death. Yada yada yada. So that's a mm-hmm. very broad answer. Um, mm-hmm. So all of us are contributing to that information just by doing our job and doing it well. Uh, more specifically, how am I doing mm-hmm. uh, using my public health degree, if you will? Uh, I have I've been involved in a few projects. So here I am on um, our child death review team. Uh, there are two teams here. It's a large office, and between the two teams we work alongside uh, pediatricians, social workers, wards of the state and we review, review every single child death that comes through this office. And the idea is we'll get all these people gathered together and we'll review, you know, how they presented to their pediatrician, when's the last time they saw their pediatrician prior to death, you know, was social work involved with the family, were there any red flags, you know, especially if it's a pediatric homicide, a non-accidental trauma, um, and anything was potentially missed, it's mm-hmm. you know relatively immediate feedback for people that saw them, um, and they can look for red flags they might have missed in future children. So hopefully saving their lives. Another one we have uh, we're one of a few offices in the nation. We have a grant through the CDC. Um, very similar. This one's for um, sudden unexpected death in infancy, and we create a database. We go through the database of every single infant that died. Um, and the idea is this one we work uh, with pediatricians at Rush, and we go through years of data um, and we uh, formulate not only uh, a final report on, you know, during this five year period, how many infants died, what were their demographics, what were commonalities. You know, a lot of it is unsafe sleep environments. Um, but then we also, at the end, create this community outreach program. And so, in the past, they've partnered with, I'm going to forget the organization, but it's this lovely organization that provides free cribs to families that can't afford them, so we can reduce, you know, that risk factor of unsafe sleep by providing them safe sleep beds if they can't afford it. Um, Another way, um, it's an interactive fair they put on, and so it'll be in the hospital. We might change it to something else, but it's basically to have these new mothers and fathers come in and learn safe practices as parents learn how to care for this baby and ensure that they know what a safe sleep environment is and so we're trying to be creative and trying to think of new ways to um reach populations that are more at risk of sudden unexpected death in infancy um and remove any um any variable that can be removed you know because you can't remove an underlying genetic cause but you can remove you know the queen comforter that's put on top of the baby so that's some ways. I'm trying to think what else. Um, I've done some research projects. I put. I've helped publish with the lovely folks at OMI in New Mexico a series of our early COVID-19 experience. And so, you know, very few autopsies were or have been done relative to the amount of deaths by, mm-hmm. caused by COVID in the whole world. So at that time, we had a series of 20 cases that included autopsy findings. Uh, there, they also use a postmortem CT. Um, So we correlated those with CT findings. Um, We swabbed the nose and both lungs, and we showed concordance Mm -hmm. between them, between all sites. But also what happens, what do the lungs of someone who died of a fentanyl overdose look like who was COVID positive or someone who died of actual COVID? And they're very two different lungs. Basically, uh, the overdose death that's not caused by COVID, but like an asymptomatic carrier, their lungs look Mm -hmm. normal relatively normal versus COVID very distinct diffuse alveolar damage by histology.
0: So hmm, things well, like that. She's so, being all academic and amazing and illustrious. I love it. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, just a couple more questions. So in terms of where you're at now, um, we've seen that you are one of the ACP 40 under 40s. Congratulations. I'm gonna save it all for. Thank you, thank um, you. How 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 was it um, when you found out that you were one of the honorees? What was your feelings? How did you? Um, you know, feelings. How
1: did you? It was pretty amazing. Um, it was you know because we knew. So you knew before. So they'll email all the honorees a few days before, but you're not mm-hmm. allowed to announce mm-hmm. it. So I knew for a few days, and I was just kind of walking around with the information, not right. telling anyone, and then it was announced, right. and they have this whole social media uh-huh. campaign, mm-hmm. and I uh-huh. I was mm-hmm. so touched by just the outpouring of, like, yeah. congratulations mm-hmm. and love. Yeah. Um, I really did not expect it, and, you know, some people spent the time to send... Really um, heartfelt messages and DMs, and I just, I was not expecting it whatsoever. I think I teared up a few times during the day. Um, It was pretty awesome, and then looking at the list of other people, and goodness, they're so diverse and inspirational in their own ways, you know, and just... Just you know, really surprised. I was considered to be on the level of these other amazing human beings that are also doing amazing yeah. work out there for pathology and laboratory mm-hmm. medicine. Um, so it was a little, it was a little odd because I knew going in, you know, it w- I would be happy, but I was shocked um, how awesome of a day was. Probably my my favorite day of twenty twenty one
0: so far. Yeah, I I think when I seen the the. I was like yes sis you get this like it it was it was it it was really I was so excited for you and because I know we've talked for a while I think was it Twitter that we met I think Um, and we started talking yes we met on Twitter I
1: think
0: we met Um, on Twitter we're all
1: true brother and sisterly love stories begin
0: Uh, (laughs) yes I I think throughout the years we've been like talking more and like revealing ourselves more we haven't met in person because yet pandemic. this um, this
1: pandemic yeah. will eventually end <laughs> <laughs> it has to
0: like your career just go off i feel like just basically on twitter and like just the discussions you i have with you and getting any piece of information i can hopefully use sometime in the future like after i'm done with my fellowships um i did want to end with one last question question so being a black female forensic pathologist, how can we increase the visibility of BI, PLC, uh, medical students into going into pathology? Or any student, of that matter. That
1: matter. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, Twitter has really been a guts and I've, I've gotten a lot of positive from it. And so there was a question posed very similarly to your question um, by the pathologist. Mm-hmm. Um, and they wanted an interactive conversation. What I found so shocking was the response of of, uh, at least a few people that did not realize how underrepresented underrepresented minorities are. They just never registered to them until people started posting articles um, such as Marissa White's article that reviews, you know, the past few decades of how underrepresented minorities have been represented specifically in pathology, Um, short answer, we are equally underrepresented if not more so than we were decades ago despite all these diversity efforts Um, and you know, Mm -hmm. people's responses were basically like wow, I had no idea whereas for me or you or someone who's represented we see this every day because you're usually the only Mm -hmm. face that looks Mm -hmm. remotely like you and I think it just doesn't register on people who aren't in the minority because to them it's just another day so I think step one is you know getting those stats out there because most people once they see that they're like oh my goodness this is terrible we must do something, but right. they just haven't you know taken the time to stop and read and I'm not faulting anyone for that but I do think right. getting those stats out there because they are jaw dropping dropping when you see how bad and it's not just pathology it's almost mm-hmm. all of medicine <laughs> mm-hmm. all of medicine has become less represented um, in the past few decades. That's ridiculous. As the US grows more and more diverse, we have a physician workforce that is less represented than it was like in the 90s. That's wild. So I think step one is just getting that information out there because people do care, but Lord knows we're all so busy because every system in America, you know, capitalism, it's all about making the most money. So every system is like understaffed, overtaxed. So one, getting it out there. Two, people talk about the pipeline. I hate, the t- I hate the analogy of the pipeline because I think so mm-hmm. many things are broken, um, and so... You think it's a leaky... Yes. Pipeline? The pipeline's broken, the water is broken, the house is broken that the pipeline goes into, like, it's all <laughs> messed up, you know? <laughs> but yes, pipeline, for simplicity. Yeah. Yeah, uh, for yeah. simplicity, the pipeline, right? So we need to be engaging um, people that are underrepresented by any metric earlier, Um, The earlier, the better. When I think of forensics, and I talk to a lot of people in pathology and other specialties, and they all agree, forensics is the one where you get them early. You can get them as a four-year-old. They will stick in forensics all the way through. Like, there's so many people I work with that wanted to be a forensic pathologist since the age of whatever. Um, And I think, you know, we need to be reaching out to middle schools, high schools, you know, strategically, maybe younger, you know, what we do is a little... Traumatic deaths sometimes so strategic, but um, I've been talking about this here and there with different people one large untapped market are HBCUs There are about there are over a hundred HBCUs in America Only four of them have med schools and only two of them have departments of pathology That is a large block of human beings that just do not have access they don't have access to pathology, they don't have access to forensics. And so what I would love is partnerships between these these HBCUs that do not have med schools or department of pathologies Mm -hmm. and surrounding institutions that do, Mm -hmm. and that actually should be easy Mm -hmm. and free. And then I would love to see Mm -hmm. Uh, I want to do it someday, like outreach programs with medical examiner and coroner's office, mm-hmm. being more active in their community, you know, doing more community programming, um, inviting people into the office. Um, I was working on, mm-hmm. but you know, COVID kind of. Nixed it. Um, just like a presentation with my trainer that I was I hired through yeah. the pandemic because I was like I'm not going to a real gym, so I hired a trainer, nice black guy in the community, and he mentors a small group of kind of mm-hmm. at risk uh, black youth, all male. And his idea is if I can get these guys to keep making good life decisions, you know, I can keep them from following the very yeah. stereotypical yeah. path we see in Chicago of getting involved in the streets. Yeah. And so we were working together to create you know, a little PowerPoint slide where they come into the office and it's called The Consequences of Life and just talking to them about, you know, how we see every day people that made, you know, yeah. bad life decisions and where they wound up. And so I think mm-hmm. little things like
0: that can go a long it's way. amazing, actually. <laughs> I think it's super amazing. I think the last question I'm going to go off with Twitter. is, uh, where can people find you on social media, Twitter, whatsoever?
1: Twitter, So I'm not one of those Twitter people. You can find me, my name, Nicole Jackson, MD. Um, feel free to f- add me, follow me. I usually follow back. Um, you can inbox me or DM or whatever the children call it these days. I'm always happy to ask questions. I'm also on LinkedIn, but um, I guess my LinkedIn profile's on my Twitter page. I don't know. I don't use it as much as I use Twitter, though. That is the fastest way to get in contact with me. And I'm always uh, uh, happy to answer any questions you might have or try to make a connection for you if I can. Or, you know, I'm always happy to be a soundboard if you just Mm -hmm. have some idea you just want somebody to give you feedback on or not even give you feedback on. Sometimes people just want to get it out there in a judgment free space. And I'm always happy to be that.
0: Yes, yes. Well, Thank you, Dr. Nicole Jackson, for coming on uh, the Diversify and Path podcast. Can't wait to hopefully see you one day in person.
1: (laughs) Thank you. I'm so honored to be one of your uh, early guests. I feel so honored. I always have time for you. I always have time for you. (laughs)